Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 51, the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Today, we're going to begin the final chapter of Revelation. And perhaps, since our exciting journey has taken us over a year, we need to be reminded of, of a few important points. And the first is that while Revelation is usually seen as a book that is all about endings, in fact, it is a book about new beginnings. Second is that from a 30,000 foot view, Revelation is simply a call to holiness for God's people. Why should God's people be holy? Leviticus 20.26 20, Rather, you people are to be holy for me, because I, Adonai, I am holy. I have set you apart from the other peoples so that you can belong to me. The Apostle Peter expanded upon Moses by saying in 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As people who obey God, do not let yourselves be shaped by the evil desires you used to have when you were still ignorant. <clears throat> On the contrary, following the Holy One who called you, become holy yourselves in your entire way of life. Since the Tanakh says, you are to be holy because I am holy. Now this call to holiness is so that people willingly belong to God and ultimately receive the benefit of salvation as the reward. Now third, as Peter kind of touches on, John's apocalypse calls God's people to obedience, something that is nearly evaporated from our Christian institutions. Because obedience is now classified in the church as akin to oppression. While these two purposes are highlighted at least a dozen times in Revelation chapter 22 alone, these were also the prevalent thoughts behind uh, the letters to the seven churches in Asia. Fourth, is that Revelation consistently calls for Christ's followers to persevere and to remain faithful to the end so that this promised salvation will be their inheritance. Fifth, God is to receive all the glory for every aspect of creation and recreation and for providing a means of redemption for those who love him as well as the justice of condemnation for those who do not. Now another crucial point is one that we recently examined but it needs to be revisited in more detail. In the beginning of Revelation chapter 17, carrying on through the final words of that book, 
uh, final words of this book rather we have a strong contrast developed between two representative cities the wholly unclean Babylon and the fully pure New Jerusalem this relationship is demonstrated by the nearly identical neatly woven phrase that is used to introduce each of these cities. In Revelation 17.1 we read, Then came one of the angels with the seven bowls and he said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great whore who was sitting by many waters. But then in Revelation 21 Verse 9, one of the seven angels having the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues approached me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now G.K. Beale did a masterful job of listing several of the contrasting characteristics of these two cities. And I'm going to borrow directly from some of it. First of all, The citizens of these two cities have contrasting names written on their foreheads. Of Babylon, we read, on her forehead was written a name with a hidden meaning. Babel, the great mother of whores and of the earth's obscenities. It came from Revelation 17.5. But of the New Jerusalem, we read, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. See, this characteristic is to me perhaps the most important. It confronts this issue of identification. That is, Humans in all ages have been given a grand total of two choices to identify with. And only two. Babylon or New Jerusalem. The world of heaven or Satan or God. Or evil or righteousness. And while these people in every era that have attempted to straddle this wide canyon between those two choices and none more so I think than modern times no such compromise no third choice no hybrid of the two is available to us if we identify with one then the other is abandoned second of all Those who inhabit Babylon are not written in the book of life, while those who inhabit the New Jerusalem are. The beast you saw once was, now is not, and will come up from the abyss, but it is on its way to destruction. The people living on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life since the founding of the world will be astounded to see the beast that once was, now is not, but is to appear. That's from Revelation 17.8. But as for the inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, nothing impure may enter it, 
nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21-27. Third, Babylon's destiny is to be a home for demons. He cried out in a strong voice, She has fallen. She has fallen. Babel the Great, she has become a home for demons, a prison for every unclean spirit, a prison for every unclean hated bird. Revelation 18.2 But New Jerusalem's destiny is to be the home for God. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, See! God's Shekinah is with mankind and He will live with them. They will be His people and He Himself, God with them, will be their God. That's from Revelation 21.13. Rather, rather 21.3. Now there's several more contrasts I could list for you. But for the sake of time, we're going to move on. These three points alone ought to wake us believers in Christ to be aware that just like in John's day the believing congregations that we in our time call churches are faltering and compromising with Babylon instead of holding fast to God and to his word the seven letters that begin the book of Revelation are not only addressing seven real congregations but are meant for all believers all congregations of believers some are commended for persevering others are condemned for their lack of faithfulness the warning is severe for those who make concessions with evil for the sake of getting along in their societies their salvation history will be reversed. They will become outsiders. They will not be permitted to be part of the eternal kingdom of God. The choice is stark. Be determined and be long-suffering to obey God and by doing so remain faithful and receive the most amazing eternal reward that we can imagine. Or compromise, disobey, and lose our inheritance altogether. There's no middle ground. So as we open our Bibles today to its final chapter, let's not become so enthralled with the end times prophetic imagery that we forget these important fundamentals of our faith and of the book itself that we just went over. So open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that'll be page 1554. We're going to read it all. Next the angel showed me the river of the water of life, sparkling like crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Between the main street and the river was the tree of life, 
producing twelve kinds of fruit, a different kind every month, and the leaves of the tree were for healing the nations. No longer will there be any curses. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist. So they will need neither the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because Adonai God will shine upon them and they will reign as kings forever and ever. And then he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. Adonai God of the spirit of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must happen soon. Look, I am coming very soon. Blessed is the person who obeys the words of the prophecy written in this book. Then I, Yochanan, John, the one hearing and seeing these things, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel, showing them to me, but he said to me, Don't do that. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets and the people who obey the words of this book. Worship God. And then he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy in this book, because the time of their fulfillment is near. Whoever keeps acting wickedly, let him go on acting wickedly. Whoever is filthy, let him go on being made filthy. Also, whoever is righteous, let him go on doing what is righteous. Whoever is holy, let him go on being made holy. Pay attention, says Yeshua. I am coming soon, and my rewards are with me to give to each person according to what he has done. I am the A and the Z, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. How blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to eat from the tree of life and go through the gates into the city. Outside are the homosexuals, those involved with the occult and with drugs, the sexually immoral murderers, idol worshippers, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Yeshua, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the Messianic communities. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life free of charge. I warn everyone hearing the words of the prophecy of this book that if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. And if anyone takes anything away from the words in the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city as described in this book. The one who is testifying to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Yeshua. May the grace of the Lord Yeshua be with all. In verse 1, John sees a river flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb that he describes as containing the water of life. In fact, the term water of life can be translated simply to living water. 
Now, many Bible commentators say we should look to Ezekiel chapter uh, 47 to read about the prophecy of this river full of living water because it is this new Jerusalem that Ezekiel is describing. I disagree. Ezekiel's descriptions of Jerusalem include elaborate details about a temple building and a Levite priesthood. The source of the river of living water in Ezekiel is a temple building, the temple building he describes. However, as Revelation chapter 21 inform, verse 22 informs, the new earth and the new Jerusalem will have no temple building. Rather, the opening verse of Revelation 22 says, this river of living water will be flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. The point that we are meant to notice is the source of the living water. The source. It comes from God. Living water is for the purpose of purification and in reality, only God can purify that which is unclean. In Old Testament times, early and New Testament times, prior to the destruction of the temple, living water was essential in daily ritual. It was what mikvehs had to be filled with. It is what priests had to wash with before they could serve at the temple. Living water was water that came from a moving source, like an artesian well or, or, or a river or a freshwater sea that had an inlet and an outlet, or was spring-fed, or even the ocean. However, this use of water as a cleansing agent was just symbolic of a work that God has to do spiritually upon and within a person or even an object. The water itself had no magical power to remove defilement. Rather, it was sincere obedience to God's laws regarding the means that He provided to make that which was unclean clean again. That was the point. Obedience. Faithfulness. Therefore, the water flowing from God's and the Lamb's throne represents the eternally continuing flow of purification that emits from the throne. But it will not be used in a ritual way to purify anyone or anything because the new cosmos will be in an eternally pure state and defilement. That's a thing of the past. Now the imagery of a river <clears throat> that purifies is also present in the Psalms. Psalm 46 is, a very, is very well known in Christianity because of its opening words. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. It comes from Psalm 46.2. However, when those words are taken in the context of the entire psalm, we see something larger emerge. 
starting at the top of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we are unafraid. Even if the earth gives way, even if the mountains tumble into the depths of the sea, even if its waters rage and foam and mountains shake at its turbulence, there is a river whose streams gladden the city of God, the holy habitation of Elion. God is in the city. It will not be moved. When daybreak comes, God will help it. Nations were in turmoil. Kingdoms were removed. His voice thundered forth. The earth melted away. Adonai Zevaot is with us. Our fortress, the God of Yaakov, Jacob. Come and see the words, works of Adonai, the astounding deeds he has done on earth. To the ends of the earth he makes wars cease. He breaks the bow, he snaps the spear, he burns the shields in the fire. Desist and learn that I am God, supreme over the nations, supreme over the earth. Adonai Zevaot is with us, our fortress, the God of Jacob. That's the first 12 verses of Psalm 46. See, we find the ideas of what is written in this psalm. We find those ideas in Revelation, chapters 21 and 22 especially. What do we hear in this psalm? The earth gives way. Mountains disappear into the oceans. A river flows from the city of God where he lives. The earth melts. God brings it into war. God is with us. So what happens in the eternal era was long expected in Hebrew culture. Verse 2 says that between the main street of the city and the river that flows through New Jerusalem there is a tree of life and it will produce 12 kinds of fruit, a different kind every month. And the leaves of the same tree are for healing the nations, it says. Verse 3 ends this thought by saying there will be no more curses. So, the tree of life that first made its appearance in the Genesis creation story is back. The tree of life had the property of giving anyone who ate it Eight of it, eternal life. Because Adam and Eve sinned by believing the serpent over God and then eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God barred them from eating from the tree of life. Thus the potential was right there before them. The potential for never dying gave way to the certainty that Adam and Eve would perish. And that has been the condition of mankind ever since. And it will remain so for most living believers throughout the millennial kingdom period. But upon the recreated new earth, the tree of life will return, it will be made accessible, and all may freely eat from it because 
eternal life is theirs without further qualification. You know, it's interesting that the number 12 again makes its appearance in that this same tree produces 12 different kinds of fruit, each apparently available for a month, and then repeating in a yearly cycle in perpetuity. Now this thought and several others within this chapter have been very troubling to theologians and and Bible commentators. For one thing, if eternity is essentially the absence of time, will months and years still exist? And if this one is this one single tree going to produce enough fruit to feed all the residents of that 1500 mile cube called New Jerusalem or even the whole world. Now even though we have to allow that the new heavens and earth are going to operate on an entirely new set of physical laws This scenario is difficult to imagine, isn't it? Therefore, while not at all disputing its truth, this may be another of several occasions where we have to conclude that this tree of life and the twelve fruits has an element of symbolism in it. But symbolic of what? Twelve is typically thought to be representative of something that is completed It's also used in the Bible about God's government and his administration. But without doubt, the most significant use of of that number, 12, in the Bible has to do with Israel, the 12 tribes. And all throughout Revelation, we find scattered uses of the number 12. And invariably, they have some connection to Israel. Could that be the case with the tree of life in that maybe it's a remembrance of Israel when they were a separate people, God's first chosen people? I can't say that that's the case with any certainty, but it is suspicious to me that the number 12 is again front and center. Another issue is this matter of healing the nations from the leaves of the tree of life. Now we know from other passages that the earth will indeed be divided up into nations and there will be kings over these nations. But why is healing needed? I mean death, sin, disease, crime, addiction, psychosis, Every other form of human perfection, imperfection rather, it no longer exists. None of this exists. Perhaps a better translation than healing of the Greek word therapeia, from which we get the English word therapy, is service. Because that is one of that word's uses. So the phrase might be better translated as serving the nations rather than healing the nations. Otherwise, I really can't make any sense of it. 
Okay. Now, the phrase, here comes another one, the phrase, no longer will there be any curses, is another that bothers theologians. First of all, let me just tell you, the complete Jewish Bible translation is a poor one. Okay. The Greek word that is translated as curses is katanethema, and it is singular, it's not plural. So the phrase is, there will, will no longer be any curse, not curses, curse. And once we straighten that around, then we can use our knowledge of the Torah to understand that the curse that God put upon mankind is sin causes death. The Torah itself, especially the part that's the law, is based upon the existence of this curse. That's why the death penalty for certain violations of the law was established. This principle was made famous with the erecting of two standing stones in Canaan almost immediately after Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River. One of the stones listed the blessings, the other the curses of the law. So to a Jew in John's day, it was important to have it made clear that the curse of the law, which is death, is no longer in effect on the new earth. And this fits well with Yeshua's statement in the fifth chapter of Matthew that upon the passing away of the old earth and heavens, the Torah would be abolished. Therefore, it may well be, and this is my speculation, that there is an intended connection between the leaves of the tree serving, perhaps healing, the nations and the end of the curse. That is, the leaves of the tree of life that give eternal life also serve to represent the end of the curse that had brought eternal death. Now verse 3 is quite interesting to deal with, and here's why. How many thrones are mentioned? One. One throne. One throne. And it says that that one throne is going to be occupied by both God and the Lamb. Now this is a head-scratcher. And it elicits all kinds of variations and interpretations and meaning due to the several different understandings of the substance of God as well as the Trinity doctrine. I doubt we're going to solve this conundrum today. However, I'm going to throw you out some food for thought. All throughout the Bible, God is seen as a plurality. That is, there is only one God. But he consists of several attributes or characteristics or manifestations or as it's sometimes more popularly known, persons. 
And in trying to explain this, how this could be, how does this work? There are a few theories, including the dual God theory, that is, Yehovah is the old God, and Yeshua is the new and different young God. There is also the co-equal theory, whereby the Father and the Son, and if one accepts the Trinity doctrine, the Holy Spirit all share separate but equal status. Then there is the theory that is implied, although not usually outright stated, within evangelical Christianity, that while the Father may still retain some relevance, it's only as the God of the Jews. While Jesus is the more relevant as the God of the Gentiles in the church. There's other theories as well. Now clearly, if one sets man-made doctrines on the shelf and just reads the Bible in its plain sense, the Bible characterizes the Father as the supreme chief of the Godhead. He directs Yeshua and the Holy Spirit, and this is my claim, also the Shekinah, and the angel of the Lord, and perhaps other manifestations of himself. Clearly, God can be in heaven, while the Holy Spirit, or Yeshua, or the Shekinah, is elsewhere. So there is some level of individuality among these manifestations of God. And yet, Christ clearly states that He can only do what the Father tells Him to do. I'm going to quote John on a couple of passages from his Gospel because it meshes well with his thinking in Revelation. From John 5.19 Therefore Yeshua said this to them, Yes, indeed, I tell you that the Son cannot do anything on His own, but only what His Father, what He sees the Father doing, and what other the Father does, the Son does too. John eight twenty eight. So Yeshua said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that of myself I do nothing, but I say only what the Father has taught me. At the same time, John can also say in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So now here in Revelation 22, we have God and the Lamb spoken of completely separately, sharing the same throne. I think we have a couple of things going on here. First, symbolically, we see that the full substance of God that includes, therefore, the issue of the Lamb, will be ruling in the New Jerusalem. And we've already learned that Christ hands rule of the earth back over to the Father at the end of the millennium. Second, this organic unity of God at the beginning, and I mean by that before and at creation, 
seems at some point, and forgive my words, seems at some point to have been somewhat reoriented. Such that Yehovah and such that Yeshua, as the saving will of God, was sent to operate and fulfill his purpose on earth, while God the Father continued to operate in heaven. There is no hint that Yeshua operated simultaneously on earth and in heaven. Therefore, since we have just witnessed a second beginning, a second creation, in Revelation 21, with the recreation of the earth and the heavens, it just might be that God is returning to that same type of organic unity as we read about in John 1.1. Or at the least what we're reading in Revelation 21 and 22 presents us with a very simplistic, not precise, mental picture of God's substance and functions that we, as but mere humans, can somewhat grasp. Third, there is a growing number of scholars who suspect that the words and the Lamb were added later to John's apocalypse in the centuries following John. They too immediately notice that God is spoken of as one, that there is only one throne present in New Jerusalem, and yet, verse 3 says this, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. Hmm. One throne to occupy, one person to be worshipped, and yet we essentially have two persons occupying the same throne, only one's to be worshipped, we're not told which one. The plurals and the singulars don't match up. Therefore, these commentators believe that perhaps late in the second or early third century somebody, no doubt a Gentile Christian, added the words and the Lamb to emphasize Jesus who's otherwise left out. I don't know which if any of these explanations is correct. I just don't know. But what we can know without equivocation is that the unified God is going to rule the earth and the universe from his throne in New Jerusalem and that is where he has chosen to be worshipped. That much we know. It is yet another indication that heaven and earth have melded together in some inexplicable way because the mention of heaven as a separate place from earth, a place of another and different dimension where God and the angels dwell isn't there anymore. And it is it's been front and center. Alright, since the beginning of Revelation, and actually since after Adam and Eve's expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Whereas God's home had always been heaven, where are we told his home is now? The new earth. As he dwells among humans and probably the angels as well. Now verse 4 explains 
that God's servant worshipers are going to wear his name on their foreheads. See, this is just a direct connection to the high priest wearing God's name on his forehead. And as we discussed earlier, the meaning is for the worshiper to identify with God and no other. Verse 5. Well, this repeats some of the things that were said towards the end of chapter 21, and it begins by reiterating that night will no longer exist. Another indication that the universe is no longer one of opposites, since there's not going to be any daytime. uh, Rather, there will be only daytime and no nighttime. Any kind of darkness is viewed negatively by the Holy Scriptures, by the way. Any kind. Humans are born with a natural fear of darkness. When humans can't understand something or something is kind of secret, the term dark is regularly applied. There are basically two kinds of darkness that the Bible speaks of. Choshek, that is a, a spiritual darkness of deception and oppression, and Lyle. This simply means the absence of daytime. It just means nighttime. But even nighttime is seen negatively because nighttime is when the lawless operate best, as when thieves come to steal. Neither kind of darkness is going to exist in the New Jerusalem, probably also not on the entire New Earth. That this verse is talking, rather, this verse is talking about never ending light. Because we're told that neither the light of a lamp, in other words, artificial light, nor of the sun, natural light, will be needed. At the end of verse 5, we're told that they, presumably meaning God's servants, will reign as kings. This makes sense. Because Christ promised that his believers would reign along with him. In 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. Don't you know that God's people are going to judge the universe? If you're going to judge the universe, are you incompetent to judge these minor manners? Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention affairs of everyday life? Now verse 6. This is essentially the conclusion of the vision of chapter 21.1 through 22.5. I think it also can be seen as essentially the conclusion of all of John's visions. So his vision journey ends at verse 6. What comes next are not visions, but rather they are John's thoughts about what he saw and They are Yeshua's words to John given by inspiration as opposed to vision. The identity of the voice that John hears in his head is a little ambiguous. It might be Yeshua or perhaps it is a messenger, an angel of Yeshua that's speaking. Now the words are familiar because they were also spoken back in 21.5. What are the words? These words are trustworthy and true. Why does God repeat himself? 
Back in 21.5, the speaker of those words is identified as the one who is sitting on the throne. The one or the ancient one has been used previously in the Bible to indicate God the Father. So in 21.5, it seems that it was Yehovah, the Father, who uttered, these words are trustworthy and true. But now in 22.6, these same words seem to be coming from Yeshua the Lamb. The speaker identifies himself as, I'm coming very soon. And then in verse 12 we read, Pay attention, says Yeshua, I am coming soon. So it's difficult to come to any other conclusion than the speaker of verse 22.6 is Messiah Yeshua. So we have the Father and the Lamb separately saying, these words are trustworthy and true. I emphasize that separateness because shortly we're going to see that separateness diminish. Now one of the more challenging statements in this verse is when God is called God of the spirits of the prophets. What exactly does that mean? See, Greek linguistic experts, of which I am not, suggest that the technical grammatical structure of this phrase is more literally and correctly translated as the God who inspires the spirits of the prophets. So spirits is little s spirits. So it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit, but more means that activating or essential element of a human person that influences that person's thoughts and motives and behaviors. And for the prophets, it meant that they allowed God to move within that element of themselves so that their thoughts and their motives and their behaviors reflected His will and not their own. Well, one final thought for today. The speaker in verse 6 says that the purpose of these divine visions that have been given to John is so that God's worshipers will be privy to what's going to happen soon. Some of the ancient Greek manuscripts of Revelation include the word soon or quickly. But there's others that do not. So in one reading, the sense is simply that these visions are prophetic of things that must happen within some indefinite time period. And in other readings, these are things that must happen soon. I don't know for sure which was originally intended. I do know, however, that the first and second generation of believers, particularly the Jewish believers, thought that Christ's return and so the happenings of the end times were imminent. I mean, right now, imminent. After those generations, 
when time passed and nothing happened, and as Gentiles gained more control over the believing congregations, this sense of urgency lessened considerably. However, as concerns us today, we can legitimately think of what is going to happen as soon in the relative sense. I mean, it's self-evident that the end times is sure 2,000 years closer to happening than when John wrote the book. And since we know that in order for most of these things to come about, Israel has to return as a nation to the original land. Well, it did that just 70 years ago. Then no doubt the beginning of the end times events is going to come sooner than later. Now that knowledge ought to fill us with a renewed sense of resolution and devotion to prepare not only our own hearts and to bring our own thoughts and behaviors in line with God's commandments, but also to do our level best to influence others to seek God, to seek His Son, Yeshua the Christ, for eternal protection. We will continue with chapter 22 next week.